in the seminal text throughout the history of God's people. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Meals are powerful. Meals present the opportunity to be formative and transformative. Chances are, if you're anything like me, some of the most memorable moments in your life happened around a meal. Meals bring people together. Meals incite fellowship. Meals incite senses that God gave us. One of my most memorable meals, and I've had many, but particularly as it relates to this story, was when I was in graduate school in St. Louis and had been connected to a man through church who liked to eat well and liked to eat Italian. And St. Louis has a rich Italian history throughout its city, and so who doesn't like, or what American doesn't like, Italian food? And St. Louis had plenty of it to offer, and I can remember one day that my friend Mark took me to a pretty nondescript place. St. Louis has a very historic Italian part of town called The Hill, and this was not on The Hill. This was actually out 
in West County, and believe it or not, this place was in a strip mall. And it's very rare to find a really good restaurant in a strip mall, though they exist occasionally. And this particular restaurant was named Paul Mano's. And I remember going in there, and it didn't look like anything special, not only because it wasn't in uh, you know, a, a distinct standalone place, it was in a strip mall. It looked pretty benign when you walked in, but I had heard people rave and rave about this place. And the whole experience was fantastic. But one of the most transformative things in that particular meal for me was my first experience with a rack of lamb. And I kid you not, I thought about and could even recall in my mind through my senses what that rack of lamb tasted like for years. I've forgotten it to some degree now, and thankfully since then I've had many more racks of lamb. Rack of lamb is one of my favorite things to eat. Always, I don't know what you love to eat, and I don't know what meals you remember particularly that stand out to you. Oftentimes, holiday meals stand out to us. There's such richness with holiday meals, both rich in food and rich in memory, rich in fellowship, rich in tradition. Holiday meals for us really are great times of gathering. They are memorable. They are formative. They are transformative. Well, Exodus 12 puts before us this morning arguably the most transformative meal in the history of the world, and it included lamb. I want us to see this morning that the meal that is put before us in Exodus chapter 12 is a proclamation. It's a proclamation of one overarching idea. And the overarching idea of the transformative meal that we see in Exodus chapter 12 is that it's a new beginning. Exodus chapter 12, what's referred to as the Passover, is a meal that is a new beginning. It's a new beginning for God's people. Then it's a new beginning continually for God's people. This is a meal that offers renewal for God's people. This is a meal that offers release for God's people. This is a meal that offers recreation and redemption for God's people. Because remember, God's people, and we've given much attention to this over the previous weeks in this series, are enslaved and are oppressed and are longing for redemption our longing for renewal, our longing to be recreated, our longing for a new beginning. They're tired and they're weary. And their own sin and the sin of those around them and particularly the sin and the enslavement that it reaches its pinnacle through these representative leaders and one particular Pharaoh himself They're weary and longing for new birth, new beginning. And God has been promising this. And it's as if the people are collectively saying through Moses, enough is enough. Come and deliver us. And it's as if God, like a parent, says, I'll be there in just a minute. And all you parents know that a minute is not a minute when we tell that to our children, right? I'll be there in just a minute. Kids, you know this. When your parents say they'll be there in just a minute, that's basically synonymous with anywhere between five minutes and never. (laughs) And it seems that God's people are in the same place as they're longing for this new beginning, 
And they're hearing God promising deliverance. And they're hearing God say, I'll be there in a minute. At this point, they're saying, enough is enough. And it really was enough. The existence they were living was unspeakably difficult, to say the least. And they and Moses were losing patience. That's what I referred to in the scripture introduction. In Exodus chapter 11, Moses is hot with anger. And Moses is impatient. And God's people are impatient. And they're ready for a new beginning. They're ready for redemption. They're ready for renewal. They're ready to be recreated. Confession from me this morning, I'm not the most patient person. In fact, I'm incredibly impatient. It doesn't take a lot for my patience, let's say, to be tried, unfortunately. This is a fruit of the Spirit that is still longing to bloom in my life uh, in a consistent manner. And so just this past week, I was at an unnamed but well-known retail store here in our beloved city, and I was seeking to get in and out of there as quickly as possible because not only am I impatient, I'm often in a hurry. Another thing that's not really representative of the fruit of the Spirit. So I'm in a hurry, and it's usual. I'm impatient. I get my stuff. I get to the register, and things are going fine until the people in front of me who had just checked out are now leaving, and the person, you know, the, the clerk at the register is helping me, and they set the buzzer off. And she tries to holler at them, but they don't really hear her. And so now they're in the parking lot, and I hear her on her, you know, little microphone, like the, you know, FBI thing that they have. Um, with the Secret Service, asking for backup in the front. But nobody's coming or nobody hears her. And she says, I'm so sorry. Can you just wait just a minute? Remember what I just said earlier, right? Um, And so she leaves the register and like goes into the parking lot. And there I am, like my transaction is already in process. I mean, all I'm like tempted just hit like enter. (laughs) And it's good. The receipt will pop out. I'll take my stuff out and we're good to go. But I continue to wait. And there's no other people that are available to finish my transaction. And this minute is turning into minutes. And I'm already in a hurry. And I'm by nature impatient. And she's in the parking lot. And so time goes on and it feels like forever. And in all seriousness, like it was no less than five minutes. It was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like seven minutes, which feels forever in this situation. And I really am. I'm just thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And at this point, I'm thinking, I don't think she knows I'm a pastor. Um, And so she comes back in and she says, I am so sorry. And I literally am just thinking, well, you should be. She said, I am so sorry. Um, I just couldn't get anybody to the front. And she said, let me just give you a $20 gift card. And like my whole order was like $23. And so she gives me 20 bucks. And I thought, oh, well, good thing I was patient. (laughs) Good things come to those who wait. Of course, I was glad in that moment that I didn't say anything. But I do wonder if in many ways on a much more profound level that God's people were in a similar spot. And what we find in Exodus chapter 12 is something far better than a $20 gift card at a retail store. What we find in the midst of God's people being impatient and longing for deliverance and a new beginning 
Exodus chapter 12 essentially is a statement that says, finally, finally, a new beginning is here. And what I want us to do is to unpack this idea throughout this narrative of the new beginning in a little bit more depth. I want us to look at how they prepared the detailed instructions for the new beginning. So I want us to look at the preparations for the new beginning that God's people were making according to His promise. I also want us to look at how they feasted upon and in honor of this new beginning. And then I want us to finally look at how God executes this new beginning that He has promised among His people. So we're going to look at the preparations for the new beginning among God's people. We're going to look at the feasting in honor of this new beginning that God has promised to His people. And then finally, we're going to look at how God executes this new beginning I don't know if you picked up on it, but God tends to, not only in this story, but throughout His Word, be kind of a detail-oriented person. We see this explicitly throughout the Old Testament, and we continue to see it throughout the New Testament, and this is important on a number of different levels, but for this purpose, God has distinct instructions that He gives His people that are really outlined in verses 3 through 6 of Exodus 12, and I want to draw your attention back to the text here at this point, as he outlines with great purpose and precision what he wants them to do. On the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for each household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male. A year old, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day. Real details, right? 10th day, 14th day, this kind of lamb. Make sure you're efficient in picking it out. Make sure you account for how many people you have and how much of the lamb can be eaten. And if you and your household can't eat all of the lamb, then you need to bind together with another neighbor so you all can collectively eat all the lamb so we can be efficient and nothing goes to waste here. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall somewhat simultaneously kill their lambs at twilight. Let me interject here just for a moment, particularly for those of you that have grown up in the church. And let me just simply say this. This really happened. I think it's easy, and I even feel this at the moment as I'm reading through these things. The Passover, a lamb, blood on the doorpost. God saves his people. This weird thing happens where he kills firstborns of the Egyptians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. 3,500 years ago, there was a real people group on this earth that had been enslaved and oppressed, that had been longing for a new beginning that had been asking for their God to deliver and speak to them. And God, at this point, finally shows up. And He shows up in great detail. And He instructs them. Why? Because God's instructions give life. The psalmist reflects on this throughout the psalms, and particularly in Psalm 119. Your precepts, your law, your instructions give life. And what God is doing in Exodus chapter 12 is He is instructing His people to new life. He is preparing His people for a new beginning. 
And it's important that they adhere to what he's asking them to do. Because according to the scriptures, disobedience brings death and obedience brings life. Just like in our lives, right? Disobedience brings at least a semblance or a remnant of death. And obedience, while it does not bring merit, obedience does bring blessing. And God is seeking to bless His people through specific instructions of preparations for this meal, which represents a new beginning. And He's telling them, listen. You need to get a lamb. And with that lamb... You need to slaughter it in order to produce blood. Because blood in the Bible and in the gospel and in God's economy brings life out of death. What's the deal with blood? One might ask a question, was the blood actually necessary? Could not God just pass over the homes without the blood? It seems, I don't know, messy among other things. It seems a little laborious. I mean, doesn't God know who His people are? Doesn't He know who the Hebrews are? Doesn't He know who the Israelites are? Well, yeah. But don't you know that people aren't saved by their ethnicity? But that people are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And so the blood was absolutely necessary. The blood was necessary because it wasn't about their people group and who they were and their heritage. The blood was necessary because that is what made them satisfying to God. The blood really stood for God's satisfaction. God had righteous wrath and anger that needed to be appeased that needed to be what theologians refer to as propitiated. And the blood brings propitiation. The blood brings satisfaction. But not only does the blood, through these instructions of preparation of the new beginning, bring satisfaction, it also brings security. Can you imagine what it felt like for families that night after they go through this and they get the lamb? Presumably the father is the head of the house is the one that kills the lamb. I don't know with what kind of assistance, but all that whole idea was probably pretty fascinating to see. Um, and just to see, you know, the, what are you doing, dad? Stand back, son. But then once it was all set and the blood is painted with a hyssop branch, the chapter later tells us, above the door, which even just think about that for a minute. Like, what, what would it be like to somehow gather a pool of blood from a real live animal that you've now slaughtered, you've got a branch as a paintbrush, and you've got to stand up, and I'm sure you've painted before, and I'm not sure how the blood adhered to this brush from a hyssop tree or branch, but my guess is it dripped. And can you imagine what it would have been like to dip that branch. Once again, I just say this just to imagine this really happened. In this pool of blood, however it was pooled, I don't know, was it pooled in the cavity of the animal? Was it pooled in some other basin? I don't know. But the branches dipped and then they start to paint. I bet that wasn't clean. But not only did the blood provide satisfaction for God's wrath, it also provided security. 
What would it have been like for a family after all the preparations are made, the doors, the blood is on the doorpost, the doors are closed, and tonight is the night. What must it have felt like to be one of those families that rested safe and secure? You see, the blood provides satisfaction. The blood also provides security. And then lastly, before we move on to our next point, the blood provided really what is potentially the most important of all things, it provided a substitution. You see, God demanded death and God demanded blood. And the text tells us in Exodus chapter 12, verse 30, that there was not a household that did not receive death that night. And if we think about it, it's not simply the households that were the Egyptians that received death that night, but every household. Death visited that night. Either the firstborn child of an Egyptian or the death of a lamb among God's people. A substitute, if you will, for their firstborn. You see, blood is necessary because God needed to be satisfied and God's people needed to be secure and God's people also needed a substitute. They needed someone else's blood instead of theirs. Which reminds me of something that we so easily forget even though it was recent. Do you remember in 2014 there was an Ebola outbreak in the United States? Right? Indefinitely throughout the world, and I know that's not uncommon throughout the world. It's quite uncommon for Ebola to be present and active in the United States. And I don't know how much you followed it or remember it, but what they sought to do in order to eradicate the cases of Ebola in our own country, the most effective means of eradication in my understanding, was through blood transfusions. The Scientific American writes this from September 2014. Because survivors of an Ebola infection would typically have produced effective antibodies against the virus, otherwise they wouldn't have survived, transfusions of their blood into... A newly infected individual may help that person survive the often fatal disease. Such blood preparations drawn from volunteers could be ready before the end of 2014. At this point, the article says, according to preliminary World Health Organization estimates put out earlier this week, quote, we have to change the sense that there is no hope in this situation to the fact that there is realistic hope. In this situation. How fitting for us to understand the power of blood. As satisfaction, security, and substitute for God's people. God's people metaphorically received a blood transfusion. That took a situation that had no hope. And brought hope into this new beginning. So that's what was being instructed through these preparations. What about the feasting upon and partaking in this new beginning. And I want us to look at this, a few different elements that are going on, but let's keep in mind here, and the scriptures do say a lot about festivity and feast, and, and ultimately the scriptures actually tell us in Revelation, and I love this, 
that the new heavens and the new earth will be consummated at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And in the New Testament, we learn different things, even socially and culturally, about how fantastic Jewish wedding feasts were. And there's much to be said about the theology of food and drink. We should do a series on that sometime. It'll have to be a mini-series, but we should do it. I would love to do that. But here, what's important for us to understand about the feast of this new beginning, this is not particularly an elongated feast. This is not a post-game celebratory meal. This is a pre-game preparation meal. And as they made the preparation, as they followed God's instructions, as they started to feast upon this meal that was for a new beginning, they did so with hope. And they did so in community. I already referenced that, but didn't you catch that? Community in a couple different levels. One, if you have a smaller family and you're not going to be able to eat the whole lamb, you need to pull together with another family. How profound. What, that, even today on receiving members and thinking about our community as a church, we see this embedded throughout the history of God's people. People joining together. Joining together in fellowship. Joining together in food. Joining together in security and satisfaction and substitution by the blood of the Lamb. And even if they didn't join with another family, the text tells us that all these families celebrated this festivity and this feast together. On the same night. Approximately at the same time. In the same way. With the same particulars. There's great solidarity in unity. So they feasted with hope and they feasted in community and they feasted also efficiently. It's really interesting how the text mentions this. That's why it says, make sure that you know what you can eat. Don't let your eyes be bigger than your stomach because we don't need to have any waste or leftover. And if there is any waste or leftover, it needs to be burned. We need to be efficient and are feasting upon this meal of a new beginning. And then also in verse 11, and let me just read this, because it's really interesting. And once again, think pre-game, not post-game. Pre-game preparation, not post-game celebration. In this manner you shall eat it. This is just kind of interesting. With your belt fastened. That's a little bit, um, I don't know, counterintuitive. But it actually tells you that this is not going to be a gorge yourself kind of meal where you loosen your belt. This is going to be a preparation kind of meal where you fasten your belt. And you have your sandals on your feet. It was typical in their day to have slippers and robes and to relax, but clearly this meal is different. Fasten your belt, put your sandals on, and get your staff in your hand and eat in haste. Why? Because something big is going to happen in the morning. You're leaving. You're leaving on a trip from Egypt forever. Are you ready? Fasten your belt. Put on your sandals. Get your staff in hand. I've heard of people before, for example, that are seeking to be motivated and make it to an early morning workout class. Go to bed in their workout clothes, right? That's in many ways what they're doing. They're preparing for this meal and going down for the night to get ready for what's going to happen in the morning. So they feast upon this meal of new beginning with hope and community, efficiently in haste. And then lastly, one consideration I want us to think is they do all of this in faith. 
They follow the Lord's instructions in faith. They get the lamb in faith. They produce the blood in faith. They paint the blood on the doorpost in faith. They have this meal in faith. They gather with other people in faith. They put on their outfits in faith. Faith is a volitional act. Okay, we are justified by faith. We are saved by grace. But faith matters. Once again, if God's people in this situation did not practice in faith putting the blood on their doorpost, what would have happened? Death. There is a call here to respond to God's call in faith. I have a friend who likes to say, we are not justified by death. Do you understand what that means? Think about it. We are not justified by death. Just because you've lived and just because you die does not mean that you are declared righteous and accepted by God. The scripture tells us that we are justified by faith. People feast in this meal upon faith. Without the blood, no life. In fact, without the blood there would be death. You see a brief reflection at the front of your bulletin. I want to expound upon it a little bit more as we move beyond this idea of feasting upon a new beginning before we consider this idea of executing a new beginning. But Alec Motier says this, faith is not a leap in the dark, but a leap into the light. Think about what it would have taken for God's people. Once again, try to channel what it would have been like to be in this strange scenario, this weary scenario. To move in faith and to trust that God would do what he said he would do. Motir says, faith is not a leap in the dark, but a leap into the light. There was darkness and abundance of all the misery engendered by slavery that had become even more deeply established. But in the darkness shone the proved beam of the word of the Lord. And that is the crucial point. Faith is action taken on evidence, driven by conviction. Faith is action taken on evidence, driven by, condition, driven by conviction. The essence of faith is the trust that obeys. And this was the point to which Israel came in Exodus 12. Knowing unmistakably how great the power was of the enemy, equally aware of their own weakness and helplessness, yet ready to pit all on bare obedience to the command and promise of God. They did this. And faith. So they prepared for a new beginning. They feasted upon a new beginning. And then lastly, we see God executing this new beginning. Specifically, we see God executing justice. And we see God executing judgment. And we talked about this extensively as in the whole sermon last week was on God's justice and God's judgment which is understandably uncomfortable for us. And if it doesn't make us uncomfortable, we need to see if we have a pulse. But we must ask ourselves the question, what is God's alternative or what is the alternative to God executing judgment and justice? Was it okay what Pharaoh was doing? Could God simply overlook 
what Pharaoh was doing. And this is where I mentioned last week and have found the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, who's a professor at Yale's Divinity School, so helpful because he can speak from personal experience growing up in the civil unrest in the Balkan region of what it is like to cry for God's justice and judgment. And I read part of this, I read this last week, I want to read a smaller excerpt this week, just simply about the justice and judgment of God that is being executed in this new beginning. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially those in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture, which he is, in a war zone, which he is. Among your listeners are peoples whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect in His justice. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home in America for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die as anyone watches it die. And the point is, God has to bring justice and judgment. That's what he's executing when he executes a new beginning. But he's not only bringing judgment, he's also executing grace. God brings death to the firstborn of the Egyptians, but God brings life to his people through the blood. And that's what God is still in the business of doing today. God is in the business of executing grace. How does God execute grace? Did you pick up John chapter 1 in our New Testament or our gospel reading this morning? God continues to execute grace in the same way he executed grace in Exodus chapter 12. Through whom? A lamb. John, in John chapter 1, when he sees Jesus says, Behold, the Lamb of God. You see, God executes a new beginning and executes grace through the person of Jesus. And through the person of Jesus, we continue to feast upon this new beginning, not through the Passover, but through the new Passover in the New Testament, which is the Lord's Supper, which this Lamb, Jesus Himself, instituted prior to his death as he sat in an upper room that we will actually celebrate in a couple weeks on Monday, Thursday. And he sat around with his disciples, his close friends, on the night of the Passover, remembering what happened and what was instituted at Exodus chapter 12, drinking wine and eating bread in order to remember God's execution of grace and a new beginning. But the people that were gathered that night in the meal, 
might be asking a question that if you think about it a little more deeply, you might be asking, if it's the Passover, and if we remember Exodus chapter 12, what was the most important element of the meal in Exodus chapter 12? Was it the wine? No. Was it the bread? No. What was the most important element of the meal in Exodus chapter 12? It was the lamb. Well, what about the upper room in the Gospels, the new Passover, the Lord's Supper? They had wine, they had bread, and these people steeped in the Jewish tradition had to be whispering to each other or at least thinking, where is the lamb? And what we have to realize in that moment, the lamb was not on the table, but the lamb was at the table. And through this lamb and his blood, God continues to execute grace and a new beginning. And that's good news. Let me pray for